unfolding the future for us is also a process of revealing to us more and more about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he will do. And ultimately, when the picture's completed, it all makes sense. Now, last week, we were in chapter 4, which was depicting the throne room of heaven. And it was an amazing experience as John took us and painted the picture for us of what it's like there in the presence of God, the glorious shining forth of colored lights and clear stones and a rainbow surrounding the throne, a beautiful crystal sea before the throne, these fascinating living beings that that are hovering and moving around and reflective of creation. Um, boy, John saw it and heard thunders and lightnings, and it was like a the most incredible show you could ever imagine. And ultimately, we saw how it turned into a worship service of just everyone getting together and praising God because primarily of creation, because of what he's made. The chapter 4 ended with this after in verse 8 where they sang, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then in verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so we saw that everything that God made, and heaven is a beautiful little segment of God's perfect creation, but everything that God made is all about showing who he is so that as we understand him, we can praise him. And We talked about how creation, even though it's imperfect now on the earth, thanks to people messing it up, yet still we see the beauty of what God has made and it, it should spur us to going, look at creation, wow, God is amazing. God is incredible. He is worth praising. He is someone who is qualified to praise him because of what he made. But chapter 5 shifts gears a bit, and we're heading into some of the what we would consider the darker parts of the book of Revelation. But we're there in the throne room of God again, but something happens that prepares the way for what is going to happen. But it's, it's grounded in this great worship service in chapter 4 for creation and the beauty of creation. As soon as you observe creation, it also lets you long for the perfection of creation. It also causes you, when you see the throne room of heaven, you go, wow, all these lights and sounds and perfection and colors and activity, and it's like, ooh, I would love to be there. I, I think of people who I love who are there now seeing that, and I, I just go, that is amazing. And it causes me to go, well, I long for the day that I'll be there, but I also think, what if that environment, the beauty of heaven, what if it would come to earth? What if everything that we see would reflect that perfection? Because we see hints of perfection. You know, I talked about how, man, you go down to the beach and you see these beautiful waves hitting the shore. It's just gorgeous. And you see God's greatness and you praise him for that. But at the same time, even in the beauty that we see in creation, we realize that it's damaged. 
It started back in Genesis chapter 3, and we look out and see a beautiful blue sky, but then we also look towards Los Angeles and see a haze over the city. We go to the beach, and we're looking at the water washing in, and then we see a tin can come washing in, or, you know, pollution, a dead animal or whatever, and, and, and we just go, yeah, um, creation demonstrates God's greatness and beauty, but there's still things wrong with it. We look at ourselves and we go, yes, it's amazing that God designed a body like ours. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The problem is, as you get older, it's much more fearfully than wonderfully. (laughs) And where you might at one time have looked in the mirror and said, wow. Now you look in the mirror and go, wow. Because the signs of the fall are everywhere. Oh, the traces of the glory of creation are everywhere too, but there's a longing. And I think in heaven, that was the sense too. When you look at the perfection of beauty, and then you just go, why can't it be like this everywhere? It was the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray when he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The desire for what we saw in chapter 4 to pervade this planet. And that is what the whole rest of the book of Revelation ultimately is going to be about. How do you take this glorious scene in heaven and allow that kind of wowness to pervade everything and everyone? And so... It's in that spirit and in that sense that we come to chapter 5 where the question is asked and an answer is given as to how do we fix what's broken? How do we repair what's wrong? It's a question that everyone ultimately has to face. There's something wrong here. There's something wrong with this picture. And who has the capacity to correct what's broken in us? in other people, in the environment, in this entire universe. And we're going to see that in chapter 5. And so beginning with verse 1, John said, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God the Father, had a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now they would write things on scrolls, which was rolled up papyrus that that would be, um, usually the writing was just on the front because as you unroll it, you can read it and then you roll up the rest of it because it was a long piece of paper, essentially. Usually just written on one side. In this case, there's so much there that it was written on the back side as well. Um, Sometimes they would write on the back, that would just be the label to say what's inside of it. and That may have been the case because at this point it's rolled up. Now it has seven seals. Um, normally a document would, that was important would just have one seal on it, but sometimes they would have multiple seals. The seals wouldn't be across so that you have to break all the seals in order to unroll it, but the seals would be consecutive so that you could break the first seal and unroll part of it, and then there's another seal on the side of it a little further toward the middle. That one would be broken, you unroll a little more and so on until you could read the whole seal. Now, when we come to chapter 6, 
this scroll is going to be unrolled and, and we will learn a lot more about it. But most likely, and what happens in chapter 6 is the judgments begin that are in the period of time historically that we call the Great Tribulation. That seven-year period of time whereby the earth is ultimately and completely cleaned up and, and restored as soon as that's over with. But, the, you know, we look at this and see, okay, what this is seems to be a list of that which is going to happen during that time of the tribulation. And so we know that because in chapter 6, as the seals are broken, pretty much mostly bad things happen on the earth. Now, what we see in the rest of the book of Revelation during all of this through chapter 19 um, is an unfolding of initially six seals, and then the seventh seal consists of seven trumpet judgments, and then the seventh trumpet judgment consists of six bowl judgments. And so the seals open up six things plus another seven. Each trumpet sounds, unfolds another six, and the seventh one is bowls of judgment that are poured out, seven of those. So that provides sort of an outline for the tribulation period with several parentheses, as we will see as we go through, kind of elaborating on what happens. But here is the plan in the right hand of God. He's holding it, and it's, and it's sealed up, and that's what's going on. Some people would say that it's the title deed to the earth. And that's not too bad. It was, it was not unusual in those days for a deed for a piece of property to be rolled up as a scroll with multiple seals on it. Um, you know when you buy a house and you get that whole stack of papers that you initial and sign without reading, and then it gets recorded at the county, and you save them so that I have stacks of papers on the last you know, six houses we've owned, even though the county stores them for me and I could get them anytime I want. I just can't help but save those things. Well, in those days, that was on a scroll that you would keep. And, and it's definitely the plan of what God's going to do on the earth. And, and you could understand it as the title deed to the earth or the plan that God has to fix what's wrong. The Father is holding them. And then in verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, asking this question, who is worthy or qualified to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now, um, the words for uh, read the scroll later, it talks about looking at it seems to be the feature. When the scroll is open, it doesn't say that John read what it said. It actually, when the scroll was unrolled, he saw the events that would happen unfold. And so most likely the scroll is actually a digital transmission of the picture of what's actually going to occur on the earth. But here this strong angel says, who is qualified to unfold this, to get it going? Now when you, when you read next week and you see 
man, when they start taking the scrolls, out, the seals off, the first four events are the four horsemen of the apocalypse that bring horrible things. You wonder why anybody would care about opening the scroll. And there are a lot of people even today who don't want to open the scroll. They just go, you know what, all that stuff, I just hope it happens after I'm gone. I really don't even want the tribulation to happen. But that's because we don't understand what the tribulation is all about. We don't realize that this is the way of God finally bringing everything to a culmination. And as they called out, there's only, there is no one at this point in heaven or earth or under the earth or in the sea, anywhere, who's qualified to, to fix what's wrong in the world, essentially. And so John began to cry when he realized that. I wept very much. The, the word there just means to cry uncontrollably. Because no one was found worthy, qualified to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And read the scroll isn't in uh, some of the older manuscripts. It just says no one's qualified to open and look at it. So John is bummed because he realizes that what stands between this perfection in heaven and the world in which he lives on Patmos as a, as a prisoner, the thing that stands in the way of God fixing everything is opening the scroll. And he cries because it looks like heaven just has to stay heaven and earth is going to stay earth. And so he weeps. But one of the elders said to him, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, has conquered, to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Great news. An elder says, you know what? You don't have to cry because there is one who is qualified. Now, it would seem that even God the Father isn't qualified to do this. He's holding it in his hand and they're going, okay, who's qualified? Who is equipped? Who is capable? Who is worthy to fix things on this planet? And they go, well, nobody. And as John cries, an elder says, actually, don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, will open the scroll. He has the capability the lion of the tribe of Judah. Back in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob at the end of his life prophesied over each of his sons, when he prophesied over Judah, and the name Judah means praise, he said, all of your brothers will praise you. And he said, you are like a young lion, crouching and ready to pounce. And then he said that, Basically, from your seed is going to come Messiah. And he said the scepter won't depart until Messiah, until Shiloh comes from you. And so that prophecy that Messiah would come to Judah like a lion ready to pounce is most likely where this title, the lion of the tribe of Judah, comes from. Now, Good news to John, good. There's a lion who's crouching, ready to pounce.
pounce, the lion, the king of the jungle, the lion who can just grab something and rip it apart, the lion who could come and devastate the planet. Yeah, he's coming. And I'm waiting to hear him roar. I'm waiting to see him flex his mighty muscles and come and and rip this place apart and do the things that need to be done in order to to bring to earth what, what heaven has in order to answer that request that we've always prayed. And so this was great news. So there is one, the lion. And a lion is a great picture of Jesus, of course, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia has the character Aslan, who is a lion, who is a, who is a picture of Jesus coming. And as Aslan the lion died, so Jesus did that. And yet he rules and with a roar and all that kind of stuff. So the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and he can open it. And verse six, I looked. At this point, John's like, let me see the lion But check it out. He goes, I looked and behold, in the middle of the throne and out of the four living creatures, these seraphim, and in the middle of the 24 elders stood a lamb. The word there for lamb is the diminutive form, which would mean a little baby lamb, like they would sacrifice. A little lamb as though it had been slain, like it had just been sacrificed. Having seven horns, which were symbolic of power to them, and seven eyes, the complete wisdom and vision, seeing everything, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We talked about that over in chapter one, that that the Holy Spirit in his fullness is seen as the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Weird. Who would expect it? You would totally expect that a lion could come and roar and fix things. But a little lamb that had already been slaughtered, but it's still alive? I mean, lambs are totally non-threatening. No one ever, when they see a lamb, goes, we better get out of here. (laughs) In fact, you don't go drive your car through an amusement park to see lambs. They're just... They just stand there. They don't do much. They're very meek and mild. But the lamb was that which would be sacrificed in order to depict the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, Jesus seen as a lamb in the whole New Testament just a few times. The Gospel of John a couple times, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think once in Acts, once in 1 Peter, And that's it, except for the book of Revelation, where 19 times Jesus is described as the lamb. It even talks later about the wrath of the lamb, which is a funny picture. You ever see a mad lamb? But the lamb was the animal that was given. It didn't complain about it. When Jesus was, you know, heading, well, it it said that, when he, he was going to death, he was quiet like a lamb that was taken to the slaughter in, in Isaiah 53. As a lamb that goes to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He submitted himself completely. And here he stands. It's Jesus, but he's seen as a lamb, but he's standing 
Um, he's also as a lamb who was slain, so clearly this is some figurative language. Perhaps the idea is he was there and was meek and gentle, but also bearing the wounds of having been killed for the sins of the people. And so he was standing there as a lamb who was slain. Remember when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, and he came to see the disciples, he, he showed them the holes in his hands that still remained, the wound in his side, and he seemed to use that almost as his identification. This is to show you who I am. This is to remind you of what I've done. And, and perhaps, you know, Jesus will be scarred and disfigured forever as a, as a reminder that he will still be there even in heaven, even in his glory, yet there will be this sign that he was killed for us. That's so important for us to remember and to understand. It's what communion is about. And, and so here, saying he was standing there as a lamb who was slain, looking like a sacrifice, Perhaps it's referencing that. There are people, there's a song um, Richard Semino wrote uh, that talks about the nails in your hand, the nail in your feet. They tell me how much you love me. And, and, then, the, and then the song says, and until the heavens pass away, all your scars will still remain and forever they will say just how much you love me. And Richard got that from this, the idea that Jesus will have scars forever. Don't know if it's perfect theology, but this would certainly seem to support that. So here he is. I'm expecting a lion and I got a lamb. The lamb is the one who is qualified. How is he qualified? Because he made himself a lamb. See, the earth initially was created by God, but God didn't need the earth. God didn't think, you know, I would really like a place to vacation. So I'm going to invent a universe. He did it simply as a gift to people. And when he created it, he turned it over to people. And he said, look, take care of this thing and enjoy this and, and multiply and fill it. But people sinned right off the bat. They didn't even get out of the garden before they had messed up and gone against what God told them was best for them. And as a result, the planet's been suffering ever since. People have been sinful ever since. The problem is, because God gave people the opportunity to make choices, people chose to damage this planet that he gave to us. And we essentially, in a lot of ways, turned it over to Satan, who became the prince of the power of the air, um, the god of this world, the Bible calls him, because we let him have authority over it. Well, only a person has the right to make the choice to fix it. And none of us has the capability of doing that but Jesus Christ, being fully man and fully God, perfect, is the only one who was qualified not only to die for our sins, but by dying for our sins and rising again, now he has the right to fix what's wrong. He has the right to repair what's been damaged. 
And so the lamb, the one who is slain, the scars that he has, the blood that he shed are that which tells us he is qualified. The father himself doesn't judge people. The father has given over all judgment to Jesus, according to Jesus. And so here, Jesus, because of what he has been through, is uniquely qualified to do what needs to be done. Now, that may sound unfair to you. That may sound foreign to you. But the substitutionary atonement, the fact that Jesus suffered for our sins, should resonate with you in a way just because of what we observe in everyday life. Almost any pain is only alleviated by some other pain. And you see this in a microcosm even. When you are feeling horrible and someone comes along who is willing to feel that for you and with you, you know, we, they understand. And the Bible says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So as we are willing to subject ourselves to pain, we connect with people in a way that leads them toward the alleviation of pain. And that's a pattern that we see in life. Now, here in the book of Revelation, we are going to see a lot of pain unfold. And who is capable of inflicting that pain? Who's qualified to say, let me get this? And what's going to happen? The whole book of Revelation, we often think of it as God just being angry and wanting to crush everyone. He could have done that with one snap of his fingers. But what happens here is that we see consecutively, we see meticulously as everything that we have damaged we see it going to its ultimate conclusion. It, it, it is as if he is lancing the wound. It's as if he is saying, let's get all of this out of you. I, I have given you choice. Now I'm going to allow you to live with your choice. Because as we'll see next week, what all of these judgments are ultimately about is giving people exactly what they've always wanted. Now, in the process, tons of people are going to get saved. Countless people are going to go, wow, I get it now. And they're going to turn to Jesus Christ as their God and Savior. And a lot of those people who go through the tribulation and suffer and find Christ are people who probably wouldn't have got saved any other way. So the opening of this scroll brings really good news, but it also just allows sin to play itself out, to wear itself out. It's kind of like, you know, when Muhammad Ali that time, when he, you know, the rope-a-dope, I think when he was fighting George Foreman, and Foreman was just huge. And Ali didn't have a chance in the fight, but all he did was just put his gloves up and covered himself up. And he just leaned against the ropes, and he absorbed the blows. And finally, when his opponent had gotten punched out, then he finished him off. That's kind of what's happening here, but Jesus had to have the right to do that by being a representative of people. And he had paid the price, so he is our high priest, he is our redeemer, as we're gonna see, and he is the only one who's qualified to fix what's wrong in the world. And so there he is, the lamb, 
that was slain. And then in verse 7, he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And everybody there had a sense of, oh boy, we're getting this thing done. What's represented in the scroll is that which it's going to take to bring heaven to earth. And so now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, these angelic beings, and the 24 elders, the representatives of people who had believed in Jesus, fell down, prostrated themselves before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Now, the ones having the harp and the incense were the elders, not the angelic beings linguistically. So they have a harp, which really wasn't a harp. It was probably what they call a zithern. According to Josephus, the, this instrument was a, like a guitar, a 10-stringed instrument, though, that was played with a, either with your fingers or with a pick. They would use a key in those days. So they have these guitars, and they have these bowls of incense that are burning. Incense represents prayer in the Bible, which are the prayers of the saints. So they're gathering around. They're going, oh boy, this is awesome. And here they are. They're beginning to tune up to play a song of praise. And they're holding in these little bowls sweet-smelling incense that's coming up that represents all the prayers of all believers everywhere. It's finally come to the time when your prayers and mine will be answered. And often incense represents prayer, but you know, there isn't one prayer that you've ever prayed that has escaped the notice of the Lord. It goes up into heaven. Scriptures tell us that it comes up to him like a sweet aroma. But here the idea is everything that everyone has ever prayed is about to be answered and fulfilled. Now we pray and we see God work, but so often the results are not ultimate unless someone goes to heaven. Really, the only prayers that we ever pray that are totally answered are when the people die and go to be with the Lord. That's not only the best answer, it's the only complete answer because if I'm sick and I pray, I feel better, but I get sick again. If, I, if somebody's unemployed, I pray for them to get a job, maybe they do, and somebody else loses a job, or they get that job and hate it, or they get that job and lose it. Everything that we ever pray for is only answered incompletely. But the, but the summary of all of our prayers is, as Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so every prayer that you've ever prayed is about to be answered finally and completely. Because everything that's wrong in the world is going to be fixed ultimately as Jesus destroys sin, removes it completely, and sets up his eternal kingdom. And isn't that really what you've been asking isn't that ultimately what we've wanted all along? So here are these representatives of God's people with these prayers bowing down prostrate as they are singing and playing instruments and going, finally, all of our prayers will be perfectly and completely answered. And as they sing, it says they sang a new song, 
a special song just for this occasion. And they said, you are worthy, you're qualified to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. That word redeemed means to be purchased back. They, they use this term for people who they were motivated by love for others and, or maybe a particular relationship with someone they knew and they would go to the slave market and purchase a slave and then set them free. There are people who still do this today over in Africa and other places where they still have slave trade. They will go and find slave traders and they will buy the slaves from them and then take them back to where they come from and set them free. But in this case, they're singing praises and saying, you bought us back and set us free. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Amazingly, you didn't just buy certain people. You didn't just buy people you liked. You didn't just buy Jewish people. You took everyone. You opened this up to everyone, and you redeemed us. And you have made us kings and priests to our God. You, we were nobody, and you made us somebody. You put us into positions of elevation. And we shall reign on the earth. And this is all because of you. Everything that we will ever become, Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, we are becoming it because you died for us because of your gift of redemption that happened because you were willing to go to the cross and suffer that loss. That's what qualified you. That's what makes you who you are today, uniquely qualified to fix what's wrong because you were willing to come and become one of us forever and to take upon yourself everything that we had done and this is really a beautiful picture of worship that looks back to the cross, but it looks forward to what he is about to do as these seals are broken and this scroll is open that ultimately results in a glorious eternity for all of us where all of our prayers are answered. And so they sing this praise and they go, I can't believe you're elevating us. Over in Philippians 2, it talks about Jesus humbling himself emptying himself and becoming obedient unto death. But therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that everybody would bow to him. Ultimately, when Jesus humbled himself as a lamb and allowed himself to be slaughtered, it led to him becoming something that he wasn't before. It led to him being qualified to doing something that he wasn't qualified to do before, and that is to represent us, and that's what was necessary to repair and to restore and to renew this place that has been given to us. And so every ugly thing that we see, every time you hurt, every time you have an ache or a pain or you get sick or you're, you're feeling tired or whatever, Ultimately, it's the Lamb of God who is going to wipe all of that out, wipe ultimately every tear from our eyes, and fix everything that's wrong. And so they are praising him, the Lamb, for redemption. Now again, we would expect a lion to roar. 
but instead a little lamb who was able to do this, who would take this upon himself. And then he said, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The choir showed up. First it was 24 elders and these four seraphim. Now a bunch of angels show up. Living creatures also, the 24 elders. And the number of all these angels was 10,000 times 10,000. Now the word for 10,000 there, the word marios, we, we get the word myriad from it. It really, it didn't mean 10,000, it was just the largest number they had. So it's like uh, the biggest number you can imagine times the biggest number you can imagine and thousands of thousands more. Tons of angels joining the choir and everybody together saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Boy, I love that list. I, one of our questions for our home fellowships this week is to go through that list and say something about Jesus relative to each of these. And the idea at the home fellowships is for the first person to say something about his power and the next one to say something about his riches, something about his wisdom. But it's a good thing personally to go through too, to say, what does his wisdom mean for me? What do his riches mean for me? What does his power mean to me? Well, they were just praising him for all of that and culminating with just the blessing, the happiness that he provides. So this amazing loud sound. And then some other people chime in from, you know, out in the distance. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, they start singing blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen, or so be it, let it be. And the 24 elders just prostrated themselves and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. In this choir, all of creation joins in. Scriptures talk about all of creation praising him. It talks about even trees praising him. Well, now the fish, the birds, the animals, everybody is going, finally, the scroll's going to be open. Finally, the deed is going to come back in the hands of the one in whom it belongs. Finally, everything is going to be fixed. Romans chapter 8 talks about all of creation groans, longing for this redemption. And so here in this chorus, they're all going, the lamb is worthy. The lamb is qualified. Finally, what's wrong is going to be made right. He was qualified by being the Lamb of God who gave himself as a sacrifice because he became one of us and then was willing to die for us and rose from the dead, rendering death something that was now obsolete. Now we get to look and say, finally things are going to be fixed. Finally they're going to be made right. And just remember, the rest of Revelation, next week as we look at chapter 6 and see the four horsemen of the apocalypse and see all of these things happening, all of this is exactly what needs to happen in order for this world to become what it was designed to be in the first place. You might not like that. 
you might just go roll the scroll back up. I'd rather have it be the way it is. But the truth is, how it is might be okay for you right now, living here in Orange County and, you know, being okay. But there are a whole lot of people who are in an awful lot of pain. There are, look at people in Japan right now with what they are suffering. And think about those all over the world who are starving to death and who are being slaughtered, many of them just because of their faith, some of them because of their nationality. Hey, this world is an ugly place. It's going to have to get uglier in order for it to be fixed, like almost anything that you repair. Almost anything needs to get uglier before it gets better. That's what's going to happen to our planet The one who is in control is the one who already proved that he wants what's best for all of us. He gave himself as a sacrifice. And as a result, he is qualified to fix what's broken, to repair what's wrong, and that's what we're going to see unfolding for the rest of the book of Revelation. And when we do, we will see more and more who he is. It's easier for me to see Jesus as a lion than it is for me to see him as a lamb. But the truth is, he's described as a lion here in Revelation much more than a lamb because it was his willingness to submit to death. It was his willingness to be gentle. It was his self-sacrificing offering of himself that really did the trick. Nothing else would have. The Father could have destroyed the planet. Only Jesus could have redeemed the planet. And that's what he's going to do. And so I look forward to seeing this thing unfold because it is a beautiful picture of what it's going to take to make everything that's wrong to make it right. And that's, that's the book of Revelation. And ultimately, that's what becomes the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so now we're going to be moving to that time that will begin, I believe, at the start of the tribulation period, the time of pressure, when the scroll begins to unroll and the things unfold that will finally bring us to a point where now things are right. Now things are done the way he always intended it. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is qualified, is worthy to fix me and you and everything else that's broken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. You are worthy. And we praise you for that, that you didn't come to overpower us, that you came and gave yourself for us humbly, emptied yourself, because we needed someone to bear our sins, not to judge us for our sins. So, Lord, help us to always stay focused, and especially as we read through the rest of this book, help us to understand that it is the Lamb who offered himself who says this is the only way that we can bring this plan to completion. And finally, that everyone everywhere will know what it's like to live in the presence of God forever, to live where everything that we see is just, wow, it's amazing. We love the picture of heaven, but this image 
of earth being made like heaven is just incredible to us as well. So make this real to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.